encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, let's turn together to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter. Uh, a very challenging text, uh, but one that is extremely important uh, to us as believers, as human beings, is the management of that small and seemingly insignificant part of our body, but the one that gets us in the most trouble, the tongue. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, if you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. James, continuing here in his letter, he says, "'And let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways.' If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, although they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison." With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out the same opening, both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. You can be seated this morning. Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. I'm sure many of you heard that growing up. Perhaps you even said it. There at school, someone made an accusation, said something against you, and we say that in such a way as to say, well, you know, it doesn't really bother me. But this morning, we're going to discover why that statement couldn't be farther from the truth. Our words have power. Now, by power, I want to be very clear this morning, I don't mean that we can speak things into existence. I can't walk out into my driveway and say, brand new truck, and expect that tomorrow a brand new truck's going to be sitting there. I don't mean it has some kind of magical force, but we're going to discover that as believers, what we say matters. What we say with our mouth, how we use our tongue matters in the most important way. And at the source of it all, at the source of what we say is this very tiny, seemingly insignificant part of our body, our tongue, and it's something that as Christians, even as believers, we must constantly be at war to master and to tame. James' directive in these verses is to guide us as Christians in the way that we speak, and to understand both how difficult and yet how necessary it is for us to control our tongue. You know, it's interesting. We live in a time now where people are really encouraged to not control what they say. Uh, there's no expectation really of control. I mean, I can remember, let's start something with, with, with just simplistic things. Let's talk about coarseness of language. You know, I can remember when I was a kid, you'd go to the grocery store, you'd go to Walmart, go to different places, and for the most part, people minded 
what they said around others. You didn't hear people using a lot of foul language when you were out in public. But now you pretty much go anywhere. And you're going to overhear very sometimes loud and vocal conversations where people are using language that they shouldn't be using at all and definitely shouldn't be using in public around people that they don't know. But we have developed a culture where we're encouraged that people can just say whatever they want whenever they want to say it. And there's no consequences, no thought of how it may affect someone else, no thought of how it may change someone. But the Christian perspective is one that we must be very conscious in what we say and about how we say it. Now, to be clear, because as we go through this passage here, we're going to find James talking about and calling us to be very mindful in the way that we speak and the way that we talk towards others. And so at the very beginning, I want to lay out that James is not here forbidding the necessity of difficult conversations that sometimes happen among brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, it, It is important for us at times to go to someone and say, listen, brother, you know, there's something going on in your life I think we need to talk about. James here is not forbidding a, 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 a cautious and yet purposeful conversation. What he is here is warning against prideful and self-righteous speech. But James starts here in this moment with first issuing a caution to those who would use their tongue to be a teacher. Notice what he says in verse 1, "'Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren.'" I call your attention again to James's use of the word brethren. As he's writing this letter, he has continued to exhort those who were inside the church, those who claimed faith in Jesus Christ. And now he is giving a clear but interesting caution to those who would desire to teach. He says, not many of you become teachers. Now, at face value, this seems like an unusual request or an unusual challenge from James, right? Because we know at this time, the, the church is growing, the early church is growing. Uh, Pentecost has happened, and the church exploded, and there's churches being planted all over. They're sending out missionaries to various places. The church is growing. It would seem like at this moment they would be looking for more people to teach. Even in our day, we are in what we would call a, a famine of qualified teachers. There are not enough pastors today in America to pastor all of the churches that are in need of pastors. There's not enough young men going to seminary, not enough young men answering the call. So there are hundreds, I think in North Carolina, there's several hundred churches that are without pastors, and they can't find anyone to come and to pastor those churches. So why would James say that not many of you should become teachers? Not many of you can become teachers. Well, there are really two reasons. The most obvious one is given there at the end of verse 1. He says, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. But the second and the less obvious one comes from a context of what was happening in the time in which James was writing. So I want to first look at the least obvious one first, and it has to do with the context of the time period. When James is writing this, as I said, the early church is still growing. It's still in its infancy, and there were many who had come to the faith. James is writing here to Jewish believers, and so many of them had come out of Judaism and are now entering into this, in a sense, this new world of the Christian church. And how do we do church now, and how are things handled, and how do we maybe bring some of what we used to do and some of what we didn't used to do and put it all together in this amalgamation of our new faith? But inside of Judaism, it was very common in the synagogues as they would gather there on the Sabbath 
for pretty much anybody that had some type of authority or some kind of knowledge to stand up and speak. Uh, the men would be gathered there, and they would be teaching, and, and almost anybody could stand up and say something and give their opinions or their thoughts on a matter. And this is what made it so easy for Jesus and for Paul as they were traveling around. They could come to a city, and they could go into the synagogue, and they could begin to teach. And so there was that kind of mindset that was still carrying on. But there was also inside of Judaism this very high esteem and respect for those religious teachers. And in fact, one Jewish tradition said that if your parents and your rabbi were abducted, that you paid the ransom for your rabbi first before you did your parents. That was the kind of respect and authority that they venerated towards these leaders. And so with those two thoughts in mind, with this idea of this ability to teach and, and, and everybody being able to do so, but also this kind of very elevated respect and authority that these teachers had, as the New Testament church began to grow, there were some who had a desire of leadership, a desire of teaching, not because they felt the call of God to deliver the message of God, but because they wanted the prestige. They wanted the power. They wanted the authority. They wanted the recognition. And so here's what Paul is warning, I mean, excuse me, James is warning against here. He says, not, not many of you become teachers. He says, because not everyone is called to that role. Not everyone is called to that place. Somebody who was, becomes a teacher must be one who comes not out of a desire for fame or recognition or adulation, but out of a sincere biblical calling. He said, it's a litmus test of the true calling of a man. Now, the most obvious one there is, again, there at the end of verse 1, that we will incur a stricter judgment. That's a sobering message uh, to those who would become teachers in the church because it's inherent, what James is saying, that as a teacher, all means that you will be judged more severely for, severely for the things that you say and you do than for someone who is not a teacher. Now, why would that be the case? Well, because, again, there's a level of authority that is vested. Now, Pastor Wes and I have all both said that we're God's Word. And in doing so, God holds those teachers to a higher level of accountability and judgment. Because as you teach, you hope and you kind of set yourself in a church where you, you listen and you believe and you trust what that teacher is saying to you. And so that trust and that level of trust is developed that you say, okay, well, here's what my pastor said, and I believe that he's studied God's Word. I believe that he's seeking to follow God, and so I will believe this. And so now whether you have mature believers in the room or new believers in the room, you are shaping and, and molding influence among those people as to guide and direct how their Christian life is going to go. You can either bring people closer to God, or you can push people further away from Him. So James cautions those who would seek the role of teaching to take a sobering look at what it entails. Understand that if you want to do this, if you want to be a teacher, that the expectations are high. The expectations are high of those whom you teach, but ultimately the expectations are the highest with God whom has called you to that role. It causes me, I remember... I think it was John Knox uh, who talked about that he, he was not afraid of anything in this world, but he, he trembled with fear every time he stepped into the pulpit. Because what is happening here is not just a motivational speech. It's not just a, an encouraging talk, but we're delving into the very word and truth of God. 
And to do it unfaithfully is such a sacrilege and blasphemy to God. And so as a pastor, we, we are always reminded of this fact that there's a high level of responsibility and judgment. But now let me digress for just a moment. Because as most commentators would, would say, that there's not a strict limitation here just on, on pastors, but for anyone who would take the authority of teaching others when it comes to the Christian faith. I'm not talking so much about discipleship. Discipleship happens on a, on a much more organic basis, right? And now we still have to consider the responsibility when we're discipling others that we want to be teaching them the truth. But there are other places inside of the Christian church and context where people take a level of teaching, whether that be teaching a Sunday school class or teaching a ladies or a men's Bible study. And so that same level of responsibility is there as well, that you must understand that there's a high level of accountability. But we're in a kind of a weird world uh, in, in the time in which we live. Because in years past, a type of teaching role almost always happened exclusively inside the context of the church. But now, however, in, in our generation, we have many who have assumed the role of teaching others through the avenues of, of social media. Okay? Now, you go online tonight. You go to YouTube or you go to Facebook or you go to blog or, or even TikTok. And there are people on there who are trying to teach others in the Scriptures, uh, teach others in, in, the, in what the Bible means and what God says and what God expects. And all of these arenas are loaded with a lot of potential to really proclaim the truth and to really proclaim the gospel in a very, very powerful and influential way. But all of these avenues are also laden with the danger that James warns the early church about. Because it's very easy to develop a following. It's very easy to develop this idea of being what they call an influencer. It's very easy to develop this idea of becoming famous and the pride that would rise up. And as I have watched videos over the past several years on, on all of those social media platforms, James' words echoes true that not many people should become teachers because so many of them are teaching things that are either completely contrary to the Scriptures or are teaching things that show a lack of study of the Scriptures. They may not be intending to deceive people. They may not be intending to teach something that's false, but their lack of understanding of what the Bible actually says causes them to do so. We must remember, James says, that there's a higher level of judgment, a higher level of responsibility. Now, after James here talks to those who had become teachers, he really now moves to the heart of the matter. And as he does, he takes a moment to remind us of something that we need to be consider. As he gives this caution towards teachers, he reminds us here secondly of how we are all alike in our sinfulness. Notice what he says there in verse 2. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, that word that James uses for stumble means to, uh, to fail to do what is right. It means to trip up. And so the phrase could also be stated, we all do things that we should not do. There's the writer of Proverbs who in chapter 20, verse 9 said, "'Who can say, I have cleansed my heart and I am pure from sin?' Second Chronicles chapter 6, there is no man that does not sin. 
And Paul would echo this even further, Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James states this here to ensure that we understand and remember that there is no one who is exempt when it comes to the danger of sin. There is no one exempt when it comes to the temptation and the fall of sin, and he's going to pinpoint this in to the danger and the sin of our tongue. If we're honest this morning, it can be very easy for us as Christians sometimes to get to this place where we look down on others in their sinfulness, and we forget that that's where we used to be, and we forget that in one moment of weakness, that in one foolish decision, that we can be in that same place again. So how do we keep ourselves from that? We keep ourselves from that by what James is saying to us here. He says, remember, we we all stumble in many ways. We need to have a keen awareness every single day of how sinful we are inclined to be, of how that desire, that fleshly war that's happening on the inside so that we are not taken off guard. Now, it's interesting because James goes on to state here that if anyone does not stumble... In what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. James is helping us to see that the tongue, because he's going to dive into that, is such a powerful instrument, such a powerful member of the body, such as if we are able to rein our tongue under control and not stumble in what we say that... We're a perfect person. Now, the word perfect in the original language has two meanings, only one of which really makes sense here. The first idea of the word perfect is that of absolute perfection. Now, that can easily be eliminated because we know that there's only one person who's ever lived who is absolutely perfect, who never stumbled, who never faltered, who never sinned in the way that he used his tongue, and that was Jesus. Only Jesus could have a be a perfect person in the sense of absolute moral perfection when it comes to the use of the tongue. But the second meaning of perfect or being perfected is the idea of being complete or mature. And this is what James is saying, is that the person who does not stumble in his speech, the person who who has reigned in the control of his tongue, shows the evidence of a changed heart, a heart that has been changed by God, and from that changed heart comes the evidence in his speech. What James is saying is that as sinful as human beings as we are, that we can be made complete and mature in the idea that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can mature to a place in our Christian life where we can control our tongue in a way that is both spirit-filled and God-honoring. Because James continues that if he is a perfect man, a mature man, a man who's grown in his faith, He says he will not stumble in what he says, and he's able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, we know a bridle that you use on a horse is an an instrument of guidance. You guide the horse where you want to go by the use of the bridle. So if a person learns to control their tongue, James says that the rest of the body is brought into guidance as well. Isn't that amazing? As I've studied this this week, I've looked at this passage many times before, but really deep diving into it this week. How often do you wake up 
and think about how powerful your tongue is. We think about strength in our body, right? It comes from our arms and our hands. We can accomplish lots of things, work hard, do laborious work. Maybe you're more of an intellectual type and you can sit down and, you know, do complex math equations or think about philosophical discussions. But how often do you sit down and talk about like how strong my tongue is? But James here is saying that it's so important for us as believers to get control of our tongue that if we can get control of our tongue, every other part of our body is brought into submission, is brought into control, is brought into guidance by getting our tongue under control. John MacArthur said this, he says, if we can control our tongue, which responds so readily and limitlessly to sin, then controlling everything else will follow. If the Holy Spirit has control of this most volatile and intractable part of our being, how much more susceptible will his control, will the, to his control will the rest of our lives be? So brothers and sisters, we can't emphasize enough how important this is. How important the control of our tongue is. Now, James here is going to now use some illustrations to describe how powerful the tongue is. Because I'm sure that as he wrote here to these believers, they were probably thinking the same thing that we're thinking. James, I mean, are you serious? My tongue? That small little thing? They're in the inside of my mouth. How could that be the instrument to control everything else about who I am? How could that be the one thing if, the, if I need to rein something in? Well, why would that be the first thing that I start with? Well, he continues that analogy he already began in verse 2. He says he's able to bridle the whole body as well. He, he continues that analogy in his illustration in verse 3. Notice he says, now if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. You know, horses are majestic creatures. I love watching horses, you know, whether they're uh, being run in some type of, of competitive event or whether they're just out grazing in a pasture. They're just majestic creatures. Watching a horse run is one of the most amazing things, I think, in all of nature, uh, just to see the amount of power uh, that those animals have and the way that they convert that power into the ground and just thunder and as they run across a field. They're larger than a human. Some are quite larger than a human. But yet a man can climb upon a horse's back and he can get that horse to go wherever he wants it to go and to do whatever he wants it to do. He wants it to turn left. He moves the Reins and that bit moves in the horse's mouth and it guides it to the left. He wants it to go to the right, it goes to the right. He wants it to stop, it stops. He wants it to go, it goes. That one small little insignificant thing, you think about it in comparison to the size of the horse, it's tiny. But that one small bit inside the horse's mouth is able to direct every single thing that that rider wants the horse to do. He goes on to a second example. He says, look at the ships also, that they are very great and driven by strong winds and are yet still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. 
Now, in James's day, there were a lot of ships. There were small fishing vessels. We know that Jesus and the disciples took one across the Sea of Galilee. We know that Paul was on a much larger ship that held several hundred people that was shipwrecked. That would have been one that would have had large sailing masts on it. So these are the kind of ships that James is talking about. But even in our day, you think about how large ships are today. If you've seen any of these big luxury cruise liners or these big cargo ships that, that carry uh, cargo across the seas, these are gigantic ships. But the illustration still rings true. These large boats full of all these weight, all these people, are all steered across the ocean by the use of a rudder. You look at the rudder and the size in comparison to the rest of the ship, and it seems so tiny and insignificant. But yet, when the captain stands at the helm of the ship and he turns the wheel to the right, the rudder turns and the ship turns to the right. He turns it back to the left, the rudder turns and the ship turns back to the left. Wherever the captain wants the ship to go, all he has to do is turn that small rudder wherever he wants to go, and so the ship turns. In the same way, the tongue wields such great power. Look at the first part of verse 5. He says, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is so small but yet it is so powerful. One commentator said it is a master control for the body, directing virtually every aspect of behavior. He says it's a small part of the body, but yet it boasts of great things. Now, James here doesn't elaborate on what these great things are. But he's really pointing to the nature and the natural desire of man to to boast and to use that in such a way as to accomplish not what is good, but what is evil. To think more of himself than of others. I want you to think for just a moment. How powerful is the tongue? What kind of boasting, what kind of great things can it do? I can think of a really good example. In, In World War II, well, at the beginning leading up to World War II, There were two really polarizing figures there in the early years. One was a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. Now, Adolf Hitler didn't personally kill all the Jews that were killed in the Holocaust. But we can say that he was entirely responsible for it. Why? Well, because of his words. His tongue delivered speech after speech after speech to raise up armies, to raise up hatred, to raise up anger, to raise up hostility towards the Jewish race. He used his tongue, he used the power of the words that he spoke to raise up this great army of people who killed millions and millions of Jewish people throughout the course of the war. On the other side, You have a man named Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill used his voice to call the people of England to go to war against Hitler. We've all heard the famous speech, we will fight them on the land, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them on the sea, blood, toil, tears, and sweat. 
You have two men, both giving speeches, but both using their words, using the power of the tongue in completely different ways, one for evil and one for good. That's how powerful the tongue is. We've all heard speeches from people over the years, whether it be from presidents or other types of leaders, people who have been driven to great passions, to great work because they've heard someone eloquently deliver a speech. And this is what James is pointing to here. He says, see how great the tongue is, how powerful it is, how it boasts of great things. But he says the caution is, is in that boasting of great things. He's, he's pointing more here to the evil side of the tongue because this is what he wants them to understand. He, he doesn't really address the greatest things as much. He wants them to understand how dangerous it is. And he says how it boasts of such great things. He cautions us that such speech, such boastful speech, will only leave destruction in its wake. What kind of destruction? How severe of a destruction will it leave in its wake? Well, that's the next illustration James uses. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. James uses this idea of fire as his next illustration to describe the destructive power of an unbridled tongue. Now, all of us in this room have seen the destructive power of fire. Almost every year out west, there are wildfires in California and different places that burn thousands upon thousands of acres of wildland and consume sometimes hundreds of houses. And how does it start? It's not that all of a sudden fire falls from heaven and begins a wildfire. It starts with a spark, right? It starts with a carelessly discarded cigarette. It starts with a lightning strike that starts a fire in a tree. It starts with a campfire being left, and there's still just one small little ember there that the wind blows, and it catches back up, and it spreads. But from one small spark, hundreds and thousands of acres of wood, millions of dollars of houses are all destroyed by a fire. We've seen houses that burn down because there was an electrical short in the house. All these things have in common. They start with such a small spark. James is calling to this, this mind. They would have been very familiar with this in their culture. There were times of the year where it was very dry, and if the fields began to catch on fire, there was almost nothing that they could do to stop it. And he says, notice how such a great fire is set aflame by such a small fire, such a small spark. James is helping us to understand that the, an unbridled tongue, an uncontrolled tongue, has the power to speak words, to say things that can cause destruction of the same level of an uncontrolled fire. Think about that for a moment. Our tongue can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And James is here telling us that if we don't control what we say, if we don't control how we use our tongue, that the destruction that it will leave in its wake is exactly like that of such a raging forest fire. Now, James points out in verse 6, four of the dangers that the tongue has. 
Four of the dangerous characteristics of this fire that we have sitting in our mouths. Notice first, he says there in verse 6, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Now, the word world can mean universe, but it's not the context here. It also speaks to the idea of a, of a system of thought, of an arrangement, of how something is put together, and that's the way that James uses it here. So what he's saying is the tongue is a system of sin. In our bodies, it is the source of unrighteousness. It has greater power than any other part of our body to lean us towards potential destruction and devastation. He says it's the very system of sin inside of us. But secondly, he says that it's set among our members as that which defiles the whole body. The evil that James describes previously, that system of iniquity spreads like a cancer to the entire body. One commentator likened it to the smoke of the fire. If you've ever seen a fire that's in a building and maybe the fire was contained to one room where the most destruction was, but the one thing you also have to worry about in a fire is that the smoke goes everywhere. It can find the smallest little crack and it can creep out and, and really get into the entirety of the house if it's allowed to burn long enough. And the smoke may not destroy it like the fire was, but firewood, but it's still destroyed because you can't get the smell out. You can't get that scent out of whatever it comes into contact with. So James is saying that this unbridled tongue is a fire. It's a, it's a very system of sin in us, and its desire is to defile everything about who we are. If we don't control it, if we don't rein it in, it will spread its cancer to every single part of our body. Remember what Jesus said? Mark chapter 7, that which proceeds out of the man, this is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, of man proceeds the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That is what the power of the tongue wants to do. That is what the evil, the iniquity that is set inside our mouth with our tongue desires to do to us. But James cautions us as well that it sets on fire the course of life. The fire of our tongue continues to spread. You know, that's the one thing about fire is that it continues to spread. As long as it can find something to burn, it will continue to burn. As long as it can find more fuel, it will continue to spread. And the tongue is the same way. Because it's not satisfied with just causing some destruction. It's not satisfied with just destroying us. But it's actually set on destroying everything around us in the entire course of our life. James is warning us that if we don't reign in our tongue, that it will not just affect us, it will not just affect the entire body of who we are as a human being, but it will set on fire the entire course of our life. It will hurt our family, it will hurt our spouses, it will hurt our friends, it will hurt our church, it could hurt anyone around us. The way that we talk, the things that we say, speak more to the truth of who we really are. 
I started this morning by saying that old saying, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words may never hurt me. But I would imagine this morning that if I ask you to, you could think back to something that someone said to you, perhaps years and years and years ago, that cut you to the quick, that hurt you in such a way that took you profound amount of time to get over. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a complete stranger. But those words came out, and it did something to you on the inside. It damaged, it destroyed in such a way that it affected you. This is what James is saying. He says it sets on fire the course of our life. It's going to seek, after it gets you, after it destroys you, then it's going to seek to destroy everything else around you. We've all seen people like this. People who are so angry at themselves, so angry within themselves that all they do is just spew out wickedness and vitriol to everyone that they come into contact with. To harken back to World War II again, there was a saying during the war that loose lips sink ships. What they were saying was, is like, we don't talk about where the ships are. We don't talk about what they're doing, because if they do, then the enemy will know where they are, and they will go and try to find them. But it is also true that a loose tongue will destroy lives. It will destroy our lives. It will destroy the lives of those around us. So we must rein it under control. The fourth warning that James gives us here about the tongue, very end of verse 6, notice it says, and is set on fire by hell. Now, the language that James uses for the word hell there is the word Gehenna. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament except for here and in the Gospels when it was always used by Jesus. It was the word that Jesus most often used to describe hell. Now, Gehenna is actually means the Valley of Hinnom, which was a trash dump on the southwest side of Jerusalem. Decade, I mean, centuries ago, it was a place where they had performed ritualistic sacrifices. So when they were setting up the city there, they deemed it unclean because of all the evil and wickedness that had happened there. And so it became a dump. It was a place where they dumped all the trash every day. It was a place they dumped all the dead animals. It was actually the place where they dumped all the bodies of the criminals who were executed because they couldn't bury them in the cemeteries. They were unclean. So here outside the city of Jerusalem was this massive pile of garbage and animals and even bodies that was continually burning because they set it on fire to try to get rid of it. So it was continually burning day and night. I can only imagine what it must have looked like or smelt like. But the thing that it served was a perfect example for Jesus when he was talking about hell. Because you think about it, here is this place that continually burns. Here's this place that's filled with all of these dead bodies. So we know that there were maggots there in present. So Jesus points outside, and because there's nothing on earth to describe what hell is actually going to be like, Jesus points to Gehenna outside of the city, and he said, the best thing that I can point to 
The best example that I can give you, and it fails in some places, but the best one I can give you is to look out here to Gehenna and the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. This is what hell is going to be like. James uses this word here. And James uses this word for hell, this place of destruction, this place of torment, this place of eternal punishment to describe the source of the tongue's fire. He says that the source of fire that's in the tongue that he has been cautioning us against comes from the very pit of hell. What a danger we must be continually aware of and fighting against. None of us wants to set loose by our tongue and by the things that we say, the very fire and destructive power of hell. James has set some very serious things before our minds. And the question would be, okay, James, if this is true, if it's so destructive, so great of a potential for sin and evil, then what do we do about it? Right? How, how do we make sure that we don't do what you're cautioning us against? Now look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Forever a species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a relentless evil and full of deadly poison. In verse 7, James describes that all the beasts of the world, all the birds, the reptiles, the creatures of the sea, all of them have been tamed or are tameable. Think about it. We talked about horses earlier. We know that horses run wild in certain places. Used to they ran wild everywhere. But men learned how to go out and capture these wild horses and to tame them and to make them into Domicile creatures that they could use to ride or to plow their gardens. People tame bears. Years ago, you could go over to Cherokee, and there were any number of places where you could go see bears that had been tamed that you could feed. Tigers, elephants. You can go to any circus, and you can see animals that have been wild animals that have been tamed to the level in which they are controllable. James says, all these great creatures, all these wild beasts, all these most powerful animals, all of them can be tamed and have been tamed. But he says, no one can tame the tongue. The tongue is so uncontrollable, so powerful, he says that no one can tame it. Now here, James is speaking of one who is fighting in his own strength. In our own strength, we cannot control the power of our tongue. Outside of Christ, outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, no matter how hard we try, no one can rein in the power and the relentless nature of the tongue. It must only be by the power of the Spirit. But we have to caution ourselves because then even 
as Christians, even as we're under the power of the Holy Spirit, we can falter. We can stumble and do harm with our tongue. It's why the psalmist said in Psalm 141, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. The tongue is a relentless evil. It will always be fighting against control. Again, he's using the idea of the picture of a wild animal. And the animal doesn't want to be tamed. It fights against it. So as Christians, we're always going to be fighting this battle against this relentless evil, our tongue. Whether you're a Christian for five years or for 50 years or for 100 years, the battle against the tongue is never ceasing. It's never ending. It is a constant war that can only be won by the power of the Spirit. But he said it's relentless, and he said it's full of deadly poison. He's used so many examples here of the animal world. We know venom. You can have it from a a snake. You could have it from a spider. You could have it from any number of creatures. And that venom, that poison from animal, has one purpose. Its desire is to kill. A snake doesn't bite something unless it intends for it to die. That's what its purpose is. It wants to kill it. It sees it as a danger. It sees it as prey. And so it strikes with venom in order to take its life. And this is what the tongue desires to do. This evil, relentless power desires to kill. It desires to destroy everything that it comes into contact with. James here is calling us again to this keen awareness of the danger of the tongue and of the battle that we must wage against it each and every day. But why is this so important? As Christians, why is it so important that we understand this danger? Because you remember James in the earlier part of the book, we've talked about the characteristics of a Christian. Last week, we talked about faith and works, right? That if someone says that they have faith in Christ, but yet there's no evidence of works in their life, there's no evidence of that faith, James says that their faith is dead. So now here, James is going to call us back again to this understanding that as a Christian, there must be a demonstration of how our tongue is used, of how we speak, that correlates to the faith that we claim to have in God. He cautions us against hypocrisy of speech. Look at verses 9 through 12. He says, with it, speaking of our tongue, he says, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things not ought to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. He says that with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and we should use our tongue to bless God. It's something that's expected of us as a Christian as we go to the Lord in prayer. We bless God. We talk about who He is and talk about His glory and His splendor. But the Jewish Christians understood this even more from their assimilation out of Judaism because they were expected to say a blessing to God as they prayed each day at three times. And during that prayer, they had 18 benedictions that they would say. And at each one of, of those 18 benedictions, they would bless God. The hypocrisy, James points out here, is that with the same tongue that they were using to bless God in their prayers, they were using to curse men. 
men, he said, who have been made in the likeness of God. And cursing here is not so much in the sense of how we use cursing today. We're not talking about just solely using like bad language. It's talking about the idea of, of cursing, of, of issuing a curse against them, uh, of them to, to die or wishing evil against them. And James says that these men are made in the likeness of God. And we need to understand that even those who are outside of Christ, even those who are still in sin, still bear the image of God. It's not the same as someone who is a Christian, but because they were made by God, even though the world has been tarnished by sin, there are still characteristics about that person that bear the image of God. And so James found it astonishing. He said that with one side of your mouth, you would bless God, and with the other side of your mouth, you would curse these men who God made. He says, from your mouth come both blessing and cursing. It's hypocrisy. And he says, my brothers, these things ought not to be this way. Basically, he's saying you you can't do it this way. You can't, as a believer, use your mouth both to bless and to curse. But sadly, as Christians, we can still be guilty of this hypocrisy. Remember, Peter, Remember, Jesus asked him, he says, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. What a, what a mountaintop moment for Peter, right? Here he's blessing Christ, saying, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus even responds and says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. On this rock, on this statement, on this, this understanding of who I am, Peter, he says, I will build my church. And then just a short time later, as Jesus' trial is occurring, Peter's there standing in the crowd. Those who are there recognize him, recognize him as one of Jesus' disciples, and they point to him and say, oh, you know Jesus. And what does the Scripture says? It says that he began to curse those who asked him, saying, I do not know the man. Out of the same mouth came of blessings and cursings. James says these things not, ought not to be this way. This is not the way that we should be as a Christian. We should not have hypocritical tongue talk. After we have been redeemed, God expects us to live lives characterized by righteous speech because He has given us the ability to do so. James again goes back to illustrations to expound his point. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. The obvious anger to his questions are no. A fountain can't send out both fresh and bitter water. A fig tree can't produce olives and a vine can't produce figs. So too is it when it comes to our tongue. If we claim faith, if we say that we have trusted Christ, then our speech should show it. There should be no hypocrisy of speech. There should be no both blessing of God and cursing of men echoing from our lips. But the control of the tongue is a battle, a battle with which we will fight for the entirety of our lives. In our own strength, we will always fail. 
But brothers and sisters, thanks be to God that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be enabled to live a life in which our tongue and its use match the declaration of our faith in Christ. James here is pointing us to this cautious danger, this cautious danger of the tongue. And as he has done all throughout this book, he cautions us in such a way, not that we read this and look at other people first and point the finger at them, but that we look at ourselves first and understand the danger that lies for us. Because every one of us in this room, no matter how long we've been a Christian, can fall into the trap of using our mouth for both blessing and cursing. And James cautions us against that by saying, brothers, these things not ought to be this way. Guard yourself. Watch yourself. Be on the continual guard against the sin of the tongue. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, to thank you for your word, instruction that you give us. And Father, if we are honest with you, honest with ourselves, as we've read this passage this morning, Lord, we can see many places in our lives where we have utterly failed in this regard. But Father, we're thankful for your forgiveness. And Father, we're most thankful, Lord, for your instruction here. That, Lord, you don't just leave us without instruction on how to rein our tongue in, but here, God, you have given us what we need in order to fight that fight. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your Word. You've given us this instruction on how things ought to be and how things not ought to be. So help us, Lord. Help us in moments of weakness, moments of frustration, moments of anger, to not allow our tongue to wield the power that it wants. Help us, Father, to quench the fire of hell in our tongue and to never let it spark. Help us, Lord, to only speak blessings and never curses with our mouth. Father, we need your help. We need your guidance. And we're thankful that your word promises that you will be there with us. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.